If you'll find your way over to Luke chapter 3, we're going to continue in 1 through 6. We've been walking through that passage, and we've been drinking up the realities of the situations of the day. One of the things that's very important when you get into any of the teachings on the life of Christ, any of the Gospels, uh, you have to linger and you have to absorb what was going on in the day. Because what you'll find is, is that gives an awful lot of punch to what is being said in the text. Uh, Historically, this is actually true as well. Uh, Significant events in history have a run-up. And you understand the events if you understand the culture of the time. Let me give you an example. During the French Revolution that happened between 1789 and 1799 was one of the most brutal times in Europe. Uh, it was Anarchy was ruling. Force was finding its way. And out of that, you know of somebody that our culture has just made a movie about. Napoleon. You see, Napoleon wouldn't ever have come to power if it wasn't for the French Revolution. And you might be a student of history, but many people aren't. One of the things amazing about Napoleon, he was elected to first council in 1799. And by the time we get to 1804, he declares himself emperor. And if you know anything about Napoleon, he actually crowns himself emperor. Takes the crown that was meant to be put on his head by the Pope. He puts it on his own head. The picture is arrogance unbridled. If you think about his life and look at the stats and look at the population of the earth at that time and how many people he ruled. He ruled over about 45 million people, but because of the population was low, if you extrapolate that out and we think about what would he be ruling over today if he conquered that same area, not 40 million, but 475 million people would have been under the domination of Napoleon. Now to put that in context, take all of Canada, take all of America, and take most of Mexico. That's the population that Napoleon would have ruled over. And Napoleon existed because the French Revolution took place. Now you might say, well, that's fascinating. Dan, how in the world does that help me today? I think that speaks into this text. You see, people have a tendency to read the first couple verses in Luke chapter 3 quickly. Uh, and hear names like Licinius, Pontius Pilate, Tiberius Caesar. Hear names like Herod. And, and we're half blind when it comes to those guys. We're just kind of trying to figure things out. But unless you understand that, You won't understand what Luke's trying to say to his friend Theophilus, who wants him to write a story about the life of Christ. If you don't understand who Caiaphas was or Annas was, you might get truth from the text, but it's like eating a bowl of soup that has no flavor. You just get the substance, but you don't get the flavor. So that's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to wade into this, and I think underneath the stories that we will consider today in the context, there's this underneath flow, I think, that Luke is posting up based on the life of Christ. As he's investigating, and we've called him like a a newspaper reporter, sticking the microphone in people's faces. What happened to you? What Christ do in your life? 
How do you know Christ? Who is he? He's done that with people like Elizabeth and Zachariah and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. He's recorded these things down. And underneath all of these interactions is a truth that Luke is trying to get at to help his friend Theophilus understand and help you understand. And that truth is simply this. Jesus is ordinary enough to relate to you, yet supremely unique that he can rescue you. That's the thing that Luke is getting at. Uh, Through the stories thus far, we've seen that Jesus is incredibly ordinary in the sense that he's human. We've also seen that he's supremely unique, meaning he is divine. And Luke is nibbling at the edges of that truth every time he begins to talk about John the Baptist or Christ. He ultimately goes into this idea of he's human, but he's not like you and me. And he's building the case so that Theophilus can be certain about the things that he's been taught. And you and I then as well. And this message, uh, I've titled it, And So It Begins. And so it begins, I was watching The Lord of the Rings, and this is where I kind of got this from. If Gandalf, right before the Great War, says that. And so it begins. Now why now? I could have done that at the beginning in Luke chapter 1. It's because John the Baptist uh, is pivotal in this. Matter of fact, Gospel of Mark starts with the life of John the Baptist. Doesn't start with the birth narratives. Starts with John the Baptist. Because this is the launch point that even Luke speaks to. He starts off with John the Baptist. His story of how he was brought into this world. And so it begins, symbolizes the life of Jesus Christ starting, but in the testimony of John the Baptist. And if you remember... Luke has been moving through these segments of Christ's life, his birth. Eight days, 40 days, 12 years. Now we fast forward. Now we fast forward to 30 years. And that's we've moved forward so we see the life of Christ. But he starts with John the Baptist because John the Baptist is absolutely pivotal. In the time that he enters in, how he speaks And why he says what he says. In order to understand who Christ is, as we'll see today, you've got to understand the message of John the Baptist. And so that's where we get into. So let's look over to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read through it again. Do a quick review, I promise. uh, And then we'll jump into the rest of the passage. And my hope is we'll get through it all. If you're those person that likes to finish what you started, well, just have patience with me. Verse 6 is a long way away. In verse 1, it says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Triconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, to the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight or make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, 
and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We started out last time talking about the world as it was during this time. It's very important. As I said, if you know the in the beginning, you don't have religious dynamic. That's why he lists those things. Now, when you and I hear something like um, we read the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, we might go, well, that's, that's fantastic. Um, we might not have a clue who that is. But notice that Luke is creating these benchmarks. In chapter 2, verse 1, he has who? He has Augustus Caesar. And now he lists Tiberius Caesar. So the change has taken place. Well, what does that mean for us? Notice that the Roman Empire is in control. That's the backstop of this. Who's in control? Who is ruling over the world at this time? It's the bad guys. It's the Romans. The idea of this story of Christ coming and John the Baptist coming happens when oppression is knee deep. Injustice abounds. Uh, the idea of finding justice is, uh, it's, it's a wish, it's a prayer. There've been riots. There's the, the God man, Tiberius Caesar, a man who says he's God, a man who's given to fits of rage. Tiberius was known to be this guy who was unapproachable. He could snap at any time. Matter of fact, he was so reclusive that he would give edicts out and people didn't know what he was really talking about. So by the time we get to 26 AD, and I would say that's the time where the ministry of Christ starts. And we talked about this last time. Tiberius Caesar leaves for 10 years. He doesn't come back on the scene. From 26 to 36, he's gone to the island of Capri, completely on his own, because he was losing his mind. So if that's the case, when you would be reading this, and let's say you live back at that time, when you read something like Tiberius Caesar, you would say, oh, I remember those times. That was a difficult time. You never knew what he was going to do. And he wasn't just a guy. He was a ruler. This guy was the one who set the temperature in the world of his day. To give you an understanding of that, I'm going to put a map on the screen so that you'll be able to see the level in which he ruled. We don't have any understanding of this today. Let me give you some stats. Uh, he had a standing army of 350,000 men. This is 350,000 men that are ready to go at a moment's notice. And by the way, the Romans, when they showed up, they didn't negotiate. You see, when the Roman soldiers and the legions showed up, they said, you either bow or you're dead. 350,000. There is not another country on the face of the earth that had the trained men that Rome had. That's the kind of story that this is written into. The capital city had two million people. Half of them were slaves. Thousands more they had in relief. They were clamoring for bread and circuses, if you remember anything about history. And one thing you need to know, this, these soldiers, they hated Jewish people. I and mean, Tiberius was the leader of this. He hated them. I mean, he thought they were stinking, country-ish people, dumb, unsophisticated and if you were a Roman and you were stationed in Israel during this time, you hated every moment of it. You wanted to go to Gaul, which was France, or even near Germania, which was the, near the tribes of the Germanic people, but anything but Israel. 
more than that, Tiberius reigned as the Roman emperor from 14 to 37. One of the interesting things about his life, and you need to know this, I think, because of the Senate, uh, Caesar Augustus uh, wanted his son-in-law, that was Tiberius, to rule because he wanted his grandchildren to be on the throne. But at this time, the Senate didn't want Caesar Augustus anything to do with him. The Senate wanted to be the ones completely in control. So he came up with an idea. I'm going to make Tiberius a co-regent with me so that when Caesar Augustus passed away, he would already be in place and the Senate couldn't dislodge him. And you might say, Dan, why are you telling me this? When we look around and see the political upheaval today, when we see people talking about insurrection, people talking about voting rights and does my vote really count? If you turn that up to 10, you would get the feeling of this passage in this day. This is the world that John the Baptist comes into. Vote, get in line. Speak your mind, we'll put you down. That's the idea. This is the beauty about the gospel of Christ. He doesn't stay in the bleachers. God doesn't view from a distance. He gets in the game. Why is that important for you and me? It's important for you and me because we need him in the game. Don't you need him? He's not absent from the building you work in. He's not absent from the neighborhood you live. He's there. He's doing something. He's doing something in you. You see, these passages, don't let them seem far away from you. Don't see, let these names of people seem so distant that you don't realize what he's doing is saying. This day was an awful lot like our day. These people yearning for significance and meaning, struggling with moral issues of ethics, telling the truth, raising a family, they were doing that back then. And this is the world that John the Baptist comes into. More than that, it goes on from there, the Pontius Pilate. And we labored this last time, so let me just touch base. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Triconitus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Uh, each of those guys ruled an area. Tetrarch has the idea that it's a fourth. It's the word fourth in Greek. It has the fourth ruler. In other words, Herod... When he passed away, he couldn't entrust his land that he'd ruled, and the Romans wouldn't let him do it because it was so complex, and none of his sons were able to really stand the test of time. And we have a slide that we're going to put on, a map that we reviewed last time, and you can go back and listen to the details. But what's important to understand, again, is the history of what's going on here. If you notice that, that Pilate is right here, that's interesting because these other three guys are children of Herod. You see, Herod had 13 kids, 13 boys. He died in his early 70s. And each one of those, if you look at Antipas, he is 17 years old. When Herod passes away, his father. If you look at Philip, he's 16 years old. When you look at Lysanias, we have no idea how old he is, but we assume that he was young. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Herod's older boys hated him. I told you the story last of Antipater. 
his one son that was killed five days before Herod died because he tried to have his father cast out of his rulership by the Romans. Again, why is this important? Dysfunction abounds. When you list all of these people and these guys that are ruling in this area, Antipas is in this area, Philip in this area, Lysanias and Abilene in the north. If you're a Jewish person in the land, this is your land. What are they doing in our land? And why is this dysfunctional family ruling? God, why are you letting this happen? Do you see how that comes through? Why do you let this happen? Kind of like maybe you say, why do you let us have a president who seems to have lost his mind? You see, all of these things work in our day, don't they? Sometimes we think the passage is old and dusty. Let me tell you something. This is as fresh as the morning paper. But what's interesting about this is that name right there, Pilate. Talked about it last time, but I've got to hit it. Why is Pilate on this list? He is not Jewish. It's because the son that was put in place five days before Herod passed away, made himself a big name. Again, we talked about it last time. Made huge mistakes, made it a mess for the Romans to rule. So the Romans said, we've had it up to here with the Jewish people. We're putting our own guy in there because this was significant because of Jerusalem, because of the port area down here. We didn't trust any Jewish person to rule and reign, so we put Pilate there. Matter of fact, he was the third prefect that was put there. And Pilate wasn't messing around. He was there to make things flow smoothly. So again, the idea of we have a foreigner in a madman named Tatine, we talked about. When Jesus Christ was on trial and the Jewish leader says, anybody that supports Jesus, anybody who supports a person who says he's king is no friend of Caesar. Meaning, you don't want Tiberius to find out that you're not ruling well in the area that he puts you in. And that's why he backs off. He sees there's a story behind every event like lava flowing under the ground. It's there moving back and forth. But let's look at two more figures in verse 2. And specifically, we started getting into the idea of how John the Baptist spoke. If this is the context, now we've got to look at two other people in Jerusalem. Annas and Caiaphas. And specifically, the message that John the Baptist would have had for them because it's incredibly important for us to understand this when it comes to this context. In there it says, in that uh, passage, in verse 3, and he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now why did he need to do that? Because in verse 2, the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas was completely and utterly corrupt. Completely corrupt. Matter of fact, Annas... Uh, was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He had had five sons who had served in the role of the high priest. Now remember, the high priest was to be from the tribe of Levi. As far as we know, Annas was not from the tribe of Levi. We don't know what he was from. Somehow he got in this position of authority, most likely because he buddied up to the Romans. 
we know that he came in as high priest and served between 7 and 14 AD, right in the teeth of some of the events we were talking about taking place. Then his son-in-law came into leadership. His name was Caiaphas, and he served from 18 to 36 AD. Now, why is that important? That is an incredibly long time. From 18 to 36 AD, they were the ones that were overseeing the crucifixion of Christ. To give you context, the the high priest that came in after Caiaphas ruled for 50 days. In other words, it wasn't an easy job. Annas and Caiaphas were connected. And matter of fact, we know from John 18, 13, after Jesus was arrested, they took Jesus first to who? To Annas, the father-in-law. He was not the high priest, but he was the power behind the high priest. This guy was the one who was connected. And Caiaphas was a bit of a puppet son-in-law who was ruling, but Annas was pulling the strings. Now, if Tiberius and Pontius Pilate and Herod and Licinius and Philip are important to the story. How do these relate to the story that we have in front of us here today? Well, we need to know that these men were corrupt. They were leaders of the Sadducees. And put yourself in this situation. I think there's two particular ways that if you were living in this day, when you heard of Annas and Caiaphas, that you would immediately begin to think of corrupt people. If you were a Jewish person, you were called to go to Jerusalem three times a year. You would go up there. But as I've said, and we've looked at, the Romans were ruling. So you would be using coin that was minted by Rome. What was the image on the coin of the Romans? It was the Caesar. You were effectively bringing in a form of an image on a coin. Caiaphas, high priest, would say, that's idolatry. You don't bring that into Jerusalem. You certainly don't bring that into one of the high festivals. But we're going to help you out. See, we're going to put up uh, money changers. You bring the Roman coins. We'll take the Roman coins from you. And we'll give you something that will be seen as currency while you're in Jerusalem. There's just a small markup, by the way. Just a small markup. Uh, history tells us the markup could have went from 5% to 10%. Some say, after we'll talk about the second issue and the sacrifices, that a Jewish person could be taxed what would be the equivalent of 49% of everything they earned. And they were coming in, and the religious leaders would say, you have no other choice. You cannot participate with the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if you don't do what we say. These guys were shakedown artists. These guys were like the mob before the mob. That's what they were. The other thing, as I mentioned, not only the coinage, but if you came with a sheep, you were required to have a sheep. The sheep was the picture of, it would be sacrificed so that it would be seen that you take your sin seriously. And you've sinned before a holy God and blood was required. And so you would bring a, a lamb. You'd bring a spotless lamb. But let's face it, traveling from around the area, whether it's just a few miles or it could be hundreds of miles in that day, would be very, very difficult. By the time your lamb arrived, it would be easy for a priest to see some spot on that lamb. You'd say, ah, not spotless. But don't worry. 
we've got some approved, some pre-approved lambs right over here. Oh, yeah, they're a little bit more money. It got to the point the Jewish people stopped bringing lambs. And they just swallowed their pride and recognized we're going to have to pay whatever they charge us. It's interesting that the lambs that were in the field of Bethlehem were supposed to be the lambs that were used in the sacrificial system. In other words, the angels showed up for the shepherds were taking care of the lambs that would be used to extort the people of God. See, that's the moment in which you're stepping into this passage. Annas and Caiaphas are the power brokers pulling the strings. There's this political apparatus in verse 1. You've got the religious apparatus. And now we start seeing how John the Baptist, how he speaks to these people. What's his message? What is he going to say? Well, if you see in that passage we read, he went in all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. How he spoke. You know what I think's amazing about this? He could have spoke on so many things. He could have spoke on how dare Tiberius Caesar claim to be the God man. How dare he do that? He could have spoken about the fact that we've got Pilate. We've got a, a Gentile serving in it. We've got to do something about this. He could have spoke about Annas and Caiaphas, he could have went back and said, you know what they're doing to you, how they're ripping you off? Let's stage a coup. We're going to raise our own sheep. We're tired of this. We're going to do our own money exchange. We're tired of this. He doesn't do any of that. Notice what John the Baptist focuses on. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why? You've got to ask the question. You can't just sit there. You should ask yourself, why does he focus on that? That's the most important thing that everything I just mentioned brings with it. Do you know why there's a God-man on the throne in the Roman Empire? Because of sin. Do you know why people are being extorted in the temple every year? Because of sin. Do you know why there's injustice? Because of sin. In other words, it's the best message. And one of the things we find out about how John the Baptist spoke is about how John the Baptist thought. He didn't think the need was political reform. He didn't think the need was fundamentally economic. He didn't think it was an issue of justice. He knew it was because people's relationship with God was disconnected. Because there was sin. I'd need to labor this point a little bit. I'd like you to consider something when you got up this morning. Every one of you, I think, maybe not some, I know I did. I looked in a mirror. And I saw myself. Now, as I go through this, try to spot yourself. Up in the balcony, try to spot yourself. Squint if necessary. Do you know what the thing about this is? Is you see yourself in the mirror. I'd like you to consider the fact that I think we see John the Baptist in his message. And I would propose to you, you see yourself in the things that you focus on. My example. 
If you think the problem with America is that we've got political charlatans, it's true. But if you make it your business to only focus on that, you think that's the solution. It's not. You see, what you focus on, you put your hope in. And if you focus on things like education and making sure people are well-educated and issues of morality, because you believe issues of morality are what we really need today. If you focus on a subject, maybe you think people are perverted today and we need to stand up. What you're really revealing, just like the mirror reveals you, you're revealing that you think that's the real issue. You think that's the thing that if people would change in that area, things would get better. While it's true that you stand for what is right, evaluate underneath. Do you recognize the real issue? Is that people need God. They need Christ. Because this is the thing, I gotta tell you, I get ticked at people. <laughs> I just do. I think people are dumb. When I see stuff that people believe on YouTube, I saw just the other day a, a video of someone who's interviewed about the issue over in Israel. She was saying, Israel needs to back off. They need to back off. And she was very vocal. And all the guy with the microphone did is said, what would you do if you had relatives, family members that were been taken hostage? Uh, uh, well, I'd want them released. What would you do if they wouldn't release them? Uh, and it, it, the whole interview that was that way. In other words, she thought the issue was Israel, but the issue was much deeper than that. She was exercised over that. And I would say she put, she thought, put her hope in Israel not doing something, but she didn't see everything else that was underneath it. And I think sometimes I get mad at people because I think they shouldn't be a sinner. Have you ever done that? I call people names. I think badly about people. What a moron. That person, that guy who dresses like a woman and goes to the library and reads to the kids. What an evil person. Doesn't deserve to live. Now, all of a sudden, I think the solution is getting rid of those people. And all of a sudden, I reveal a lot more about me than I reveal about them. You see, I think the hope is in morality. My kind of morality. I've got to be very careful. You see, because what happens is, is I'm not looking for, like I look in the mirror, I'm looking for a solution that suits me. Not looking at a solution that is God prescribed. And see, John the Baptist, when he shows up, he doesn't do any of the political stuff. He doesn't do the education. He doesn't do religious reform. He focuses on a baptism of repentance. People need to repent. You see, because when people repent, political reform happens. When people repent, men stop wearing women's clothes. When people repent, society changes. It doesn't mean you don't stand against those. It does mean you monitor your message. You monitor how you speak. And you take a page from the book of John the Baptist and go, he could have talked about all sorts of stuff and he could have held people in contempt and he speaks very plainly as we'll see next week. But he knows their issue is between them and God. Now it's important that you understand this is even turned up even higher. 
Now remember, he has a message to Jewish people. What do they need to repent of? (laughs) It's hard to understand this. They're the people of God. They're the chosen people of God. So in other words, what are they repenting of? You and I, Gentiles in that day, we would have to repent. We would repent of not being the children of God. We would repent of that. And what we would do is if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be brought into the people of God, the recognized visible people of God, you would go to somebody, namely a priest, and say, I'm a Gentile, but I want to be Jewish in the sense that I observe what you believe. Because remember, Judaism is a bloodline. It's a belief, but it's a bloodline. I could never be Jewish in my blood. But I can be Jewish in my beliefs. What would I do? There's several things you would do. You'd first go, if you were male, you'd be required to be circumcised. Whoa, do you really want to be Jewish? The next thing you would do is you would have to repent of any belief that was outside the instructive truth of the Jewish people. If you had any gods, you had any beliefs, you would have to be repent of that. And you'd show that repentance by being baptized. Then you would go into an educational unit in which the priest or somebody else would meet with you. And then eventually you'd go between a group of rabbis and they would ask you questions about the Jewish faith and you had to pass. Notice how he does all of those things. But notice one of those things was a baptism of repentance. Enter in the collision of the passage. He is telling Jewish people, you need to do what a Gentile would do to be part of the people of God. Notice the bombs that would be going off at this point. Hold the phone. I'm a child of Abraham. And you say I have to be go into a baptism or repentance like a Gentile would? What am I repenting of? You're repenting of your self-righteousness. And one of the things about the Jewish people, they knew about the issue of being self-righteous. They knew what that would get them. Matter of fact, we know from uh, the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 through 15, you'll know this. If my people who are called by name, my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn... From their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Notice, heal this land. You see, when that prayer was done, that prayer was offered, God in the Old Testament connects. The issues going on in the land are directly related to the fact that you are needing forgiveness. You need to repent But what happens when you go to a group of people that don't think they need to repent and you say you need to repent? Conflict. They didn't like the message. When you have Annas and Caiaphas and when you have rulers such as the ones listed that we walk through, you have tremendous disconnect. Matter of fact, Jesus, when he showed up, he mentioned that specifically in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, everybody would have said, fantastic, we're all about the law. We're all about observing the 613 different commandments. But what you don't know is that he created shortcuts in those commandments. For example, on Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. You're not supposed to travel over a certain distance during the Sabbath time. What they would do is they'd take these intervals. They'd travel from here to here, and then they'd say they rested. Sufficient to satisfy the Sabbath, and they'd travel from here to here. Sufficient to satisfy the Sabbath, here to here. In other words, they'd create all these manageable standards. And they were missing the point that you're supposed to rest and observe how God in the creation week, he rested. And then you're supposed to look forward to the Messiah coming and finding your rest in him. That's why the Sabbath was there. All the Gentiles around them were working. They're not. Why? They're the people of God. And if they don't observe the Sabbath, they're blowing up their own identity. They're misunderstanding who they are as a people, what they've come from, God and creation, what they're looking for, God and Messiah. And they'd made all of these circumvented little standards where they can go around it. So if you read that, Christ would have taught that, and he says, not a jot, not an iota is going to pass away. They're all doing this. And then Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. The scribes and the Pharisees were the best of the best. They were the Navy's seals when it comes to like a military unit. They were the best. When it comes to obeying the commandments, the scribes and the Pharisees, they know it. They do it. They're the standard for all of us. And Jesus shows up and says... You've got to be better than the best. There's two ways to read that. Number one, I've got to try harder. But after you think about it for a few minutes, you go, how in the world can I try harder, be better than the Pharisees and the scribes? I can't do it. Which would bring you to the point of Jesus saying what he said. You can't. You can't do it. See, the problem is self-righteousness. That they said, well, I can... Live and I can please God. God will provide the grace in the sacrificial system. He'll provide the grace. It's out there. But I've got to work it. I've got to do it. I've got to be righteous. And my righteousness is really me. That's offensive. John the Baptist shows up and says the first thing we've got to do. And how he speaks. The first thing he does. We've got to deal with the fact that they think they're righteous. And he calls people to the baptism of repentance, a repentance that would be something that would be required of a Gentile. You talk about humbling. But unless a person comes to the point that they realize, I cannot be righteous, there is nothing good I can do. There is nothing good in me. My motives are polluted down to my core. You can't have hope. You can't connect with God if you bring something to God that you think he should be excited about. You and I are destitute spiritually. We're bankrupt. We're fallen. That's the term of the New Testament, the Old Testament. It's our story. 
And that's what John the Baptist, that's how he speaks. He doesn't expect people to be better. He expects people to recognize their condition. This is important for us. Because as we go out from this place and we have a message, do you focus on things that are more societal-based politics, education, morality? Do you find yourself getting upset at that? Do you find yourself getting upset at the fact that people need Christ? And you find yourself operating in two spheres. Number one, the sphere of you're angry at sin, legit but you're also recognizing you're part of the problem in the sense that you've sinned. You recognize you were in that same place, so you bring compassion. You see, what I find in my life is when my compassion for lost people goes down and I start railing about how they perform, it usually is related to my self-righteousness. Because I think better about me. If they were just like me. But if I think biblically, the way John the Baptist and how he spoke. My heart turns and I go, I was just like that. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, that would be me. And I can stand in one point, say that's wrong, but I can have compassion. I find that the people that don't have compassion and they treat people like a a log and they've got a chainsaw. They've forgotten what they've been saved from. I find that to be true. Just like a mirror shows us who we are, your message, your posture will show what you put your hope in. Do you put your hope in Christ and what he's done? Or some social reform that you would like to see happen in the world that would make your life better? You see, we're weak people. We lose focus so quick, don't we? And that's why we're thankful for passages like Luke chapter 3. Because it helps us focus as we dig in and dive deep. Next time we're going to consider verses 4 through 6 and why John the Baptist acted the way he did in this passage. Not only the moment he came into, how he spoke, but then why. And I'd encourage you to do this as a quick introduction. Isaiah chapter 40. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are effectively on judgment. 40 through 66 are on God's salvation. Notice that John the Baptist's message starts right when the page turns from judgment to hope. And that cements our understanding because we think John the Baptist is this for the kingdom over. Lord, we're grateful that you rescue people like us. That very quickly we become self-righteous. Not like the religious leaders who base their justification on their self-righteousness. But we can become the authors of the answers that society needs. And we can get so caught up in our own comfort that we lose the reality that our greatest message is a message of forgiveness that you offer Christ. That you offer to people today. Think about that. That people can be united to the holy God of the universe on the basis of what you've done. What an amazing truth. And we confess, we are often very, very hard to that. We get caught up in the systems and answers of this world. Help us, extricate us from that, rescue us from ourselves, so that we might honor you and rescue people through us, we ask. 
We thank you for your kindness towards us. When we are quick to judge others, help us remember that you saved us, that you brought us out from where we were so that we would then become instruments that you can use, instruments in your hand. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And I know that we talk about things like this as we've been saying over the last month and a half. You know, some of you might say, well, I've maybe burned some relationships. I've come on too strong with people, but I want to reach them. But maybe I've uh, pushed them further away with the rhetoric that I've used. Uh, next steps, I'd encourage you. We'd love to pray for you in that, encourage you. Maybe some ways that you can climb back into the driver's seat in that relationship. Maybe something else was said in the message today. On the bottom of your teaching guide, you have that QR code. All you need to do is take a picture of that, open it up. We'd love to have somebody on our team contact you to help you make that next step because it's very, very important for you to live as a redemptive force in this world. We're going to sing a song here. The chorus says, I will wait for you, I will wait for you. On your word I will rely. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. You have to put your heart, your soul, into a place that's satisfied by Christ. Not the political situation you'd like, not the moral situation you would like in your neighborhood or with your friends. Find your satisfaction in Christ. Then you're able to be a force in the political realm in the moral realm, in your neighborhood, in your friend's life. But you have to start there. What you champion is what you cherish. Let's cherish Christ together as you stand.